Nah, not those lions. Three lions we can get behind. And he hoofed it. There's more pressure being ratcheted up with a loss like that, of course. Just getting the head boxed off, should that just kind of happen? For all your Lions coverage this summer, download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now you're very welcome Max. So we're chatting through the Sunday Papers. Very happy to say we have Kieran Cunningham with us, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. And we have Shane Keegan as well, League of Ireland manager, been involved with Dundalk and Galway United and Wexford over the past decade or so. I'll run you through the headlines first of all. So the Sunday Mirror, first of all, we have South Africa 17, British and Irish Lions 22. Lions are bigger and better. And then beneath that, we have a picture of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. And it says Jolly Oli. And I'd say he is because he's getting 10 million a year now to manage Manchester United, a contract extension for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, a three-year deal. And he's talking about Paul Pogba as well and hoping that Pogba signs the £400,000 a week contract offer on the table. Pogba's into the last year of his contract, obviously. And then City's Kane long game over here on the left-hand side. Man City braced for the Harry Kane transfer saga to go all the way to transfer deadline day on August 31st. Well, we all look forward to 20, what, 30? 36 days of that that'd be fun so uh, then the uh, star again they go with Manchester United and Pogba Hope and Astaire so it's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer he was speaking at a press conference after signing his deal and Pogba was the uh, main topic of conversation Solskjaer talking about how he's enjoyed his time working with them and hopefully we can stay at it a bit longer so that's the star the Sunday World they lead with the Waterford-Galway game yesterday Daisha raised the bar this was Waterford 130, Galway 320. And beneath that, the subheading, picture of Joe Canning. Galway's Canning makes hurling history. And so Joe Canning, remarkable really achievement. He has overtaken Henry Shefflin as the leading all-time championship scorer in the sport. So he scored nine points yesterday to overtake Shefflin. The other corner, we have the... Irish women's hockey team, they beat South Africa 2-0 at the Olympics. And inside, by the way, just a quick mention of something in case we don't get time to do it later on. Page 67, Pat Spillane's column. And he says it's his understanding, Pat Spillane's understanding, that Stephen Cluxton has retired and he wants to go quietly. So that's Pat Spillane's understanding of what's happening with Stephen Cluxton. Plenty of uh, rumour right there. And he's coming back and he's not coming back and various things. But Pat Spillane... He's here and he's retired. The Sunday Independent front page, it's a picture of Jack Conan, who was very good, you'd have to say, on balance for the Lions last night, carrying the ball. Lions roar back. Gatland hails his troops after a stirring second half show. If you missed that game, they were down by 12 points to three at halftime. They won the second half 19 points to five, and that did not look likely at halftime. South Africa in total control, first 40, and then the game flipped on its head entirely. The Sunday Times then, another picture of the Lions. This is after Luke Kandicki's try at the start of the second half, which got things moving again. Heroic Lions turn around 12-3, half-time deficit to win first test. And then beneath that again, it's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Solskjaer lands deal until 2024 at United. And there is an option to go to 2025 as well. Then finally, I have the Mail on Sunday. I suspect we'll talk about this. New heat on Man City in cash cheat probes. So effectively, it turns out and it's only been revealed this week after some of the uh, top judges over in the UK uh, deemed it allowable. It's only come to light this week that the Premier League have been investigating Man City for the last 
three years or so and they're completely fed up with the lack of cooperation and it's all public and the Mail on Sunday have some details inside. So they are your back pages. Kieran Cunningham and Shane Keegan, like I said, uh, with us. Uh, Solskjaer deal until 2024, Shane, and then uh, the Paul Pogba situation goes on. So he's got a £400,000 deal on the table. If he doesn't sign it pretty soon, they are going to have to sell him pretty soon to PSG. They can't let this drift into the season. Yeah, yeah, definitely the case. All right, it's got to be one or the other fairly quickly, Joe. Um, yeah, look, I'm like most people. I'm I'm not a United fan, and he he, he drives me crazy. Um, so I can just imagine how much he drives United fans crazy. We saw the talent again during the summer. There's no doubt. I, I thought he look he had one or two of his usual brain-dead moments, so he did. But by and large, he was very, very, very good. Um, I think it's been kind of well-discussed how big of a factor they, 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 the partnership with Kante is in that. I'd say, would it be 50-50 with United fans whether they'd want him to stay or go, Joe? Probably. They'd take the France version of Paul Pogba. Yeah, listen, there's not a team in the world that wouldn't take the France version of Paul Pogba, but uh, as I say, to have the France version of Paul Pogba, uh, does that mean going out and spending however much money you're going to need to go and get a Kante or a Kante light um, version? But uh, look, that's that's certainly not an option for them. So they're, they're going to have to take what they have or, or, or let them off. One other back page, Kieran, is The Sun and it's uh, Jack Woolley crushed. Woolley debates his path. Devastated. This is Neil O'Reardon over in Tokyo. Devastated Jack Woolley questioned whether he and his coach can continue to put their lives on hold after his Olympic dream died. He was the uh, sixth seed in the Taekwondo and he had high hopes of at least a medal, the way he was talking, at least a medal in the Tokyo Games. He just missed out as a 17-year-old on getting to Rio and so he really fancied his chances here. And uh, I guess it's tough when your life's work comes down to six minutes and he was ahead with about 10 seconds to go and his opponent landed a kick which gave him three points. So he snatched the win and Woolley is left crushed and on the floor and he's talking afterwards inside page 55 about just the sacrifices you make as an Olympian missing his uh, grandmother's funeral and her death and little things like that he says you start contemplating why and talks about the guilt because so many people have done so much for him his coach has been away from his family and various family members have sacrificed for him and he feels like just saying sorry and wanting to apologise and he says, uh, you know, there were no nerves, no doubt, no excitement yesterday. I wasn't thinking of anyone back home. I didn't get stage fright. It's nothing like that. I went out focused, ready. I was in the shape of my life. Everything was in place and then sucker punched at the death. And I mean, I suspect he will come back because it would be hard to depart the sport on those terms. But there is nothing like the Olympics to just tear up life's works in seconds. Yeah, like, um, I expect it to be in Tokyo at the moment. Uh, like, I covered the last five Olympics, but uh, due to a health issue, I pulled out two months ago. And it's been strange watching it from afar when you're so used to being in that bubble. And, it, you know, it really takes over your life when you're covering it there. And, uh, you know, you would have been on their air there, so you, you might not have seen Emmett Brennan, the boxer's interview, now, just about 15 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago, he was beaten in his first fight. By an Uzbe- a guy from Uzbekistan who's a world silver medalist, Asia champion, very good boxer. And Uzbekistan will be the strongest country in amateur boxing in the world now. So he was really up against it. But uh, like Emmett Brennan's story, Emmett is a, he's a friend of a, of a relative of mine. Uh, and uh, he was telling me about Emmett for years. Emmett is quite old on the Olympics for the first time. He's 30. 
he worked part time for years. You know, he was uh, he wasn't on funding. He was getting credit union loans to to so that he could train and, and pursue his Olympic dream. I know, and like Jack Woolley, he broke down in tears there in his interviews afterwards. You know, and talked about you know he was back on a lot of injuries. He'd only sparred uh, uh, two rounds before the Olympics, only five rounds before the qualifiers because of a rib injury, and he got hit hard by the and the ribs at the end of the first round. And it's it's particularly cruel thing with the Olympics. Like if I go back thinking about the Olympics I've been at, there's been so many mixed zones that have been standing there and devastated Irish competitors crying their eyes out. And you you know it made means so much to them to get to the Olympics. You know, it was gone in whatever it was six minutes for Jack Woolley. It's gone in nine minutes for Emmett Brennan. Like it's and the margins are so tight. Like Jack Woolley, as you say, with seconds to go, he was going through. And if he went through, he had a real shot at a medal. And he's an incredibly impressive young guy. Like he's um, he came very very close to making Rio at seventeen. He, you know, he's bisexual and been very open about his sexuality since he was a young teenager. You know, it doesn't bother, it never bothered him. I asked him about this, it never bothered him about what people thought of him. You know, like he said, I can carry myself, you know, people won't dare say anything to him. And you look at the, you know, how how afraid uh, other people are to express themselves and go in front uh, of the media after a bad loss. He took a half an hour to compose himself and he didn't have to stop at the mix zone. And he wanted to stop and he spoke really well. But it was harrowing to watch. You know, it's very upsetting. And it's there's nothing like the Olympics. Like, you, you know, I covered Europe, European championships in soccer, World Cups in soccer and rugby. And you don't get that. Like, uh, the Olympics strips people there in a way that no other sporting event does. And maybe largely that's because it's a lot of, there's a lot of the sports are individual ones. And people, you know, they feel they have to front up for themselves, you know, rather than hiding behind a team or a manager. And it gives you very raw moments and very uncomfortable moments and moments I, I sometimes wonder, you know, should we be there? Mm. Well, Dennis Walsh was there for the Sunday Times and he writes about Jack Woolley as a really good example, I suppose, of what the Olympics demands and what it can take at a moment's notice. Nine years of sacrifice, one broken heart is the headline. There's a great picture of the fight from yesterday. And as you alluded to, Kieran, Dennis Walsh writes that Woolley took some time to compose himself. After half an hour, he thought he was ready to discuss the greatest disappointment of his young life. As soon as he tried, his face was hijacked by feelings that were still raw and untreated. In three different interviews, he broke down in the wide world of sport. The Olympics is the biggest slaughterhouse for dreams, which is a great line. And I guess the yeah. other reason, Shane, a lot of the athletes break down is that they feel like they are putting their lives on hold to pursue this dream. Annalise Murphy was on the show just a couple of weeks ago and she was saying this will most likely really be her last Olympics, even though she's 31 and could absolutely do the next one. And she was sort of quipping that as much as she enjoys it, she said, well, I'm 31. I still live with my parents. At a certain point, I have to start, you know, moving on with my life. And Annalise Murphy is an Olympic medalist and has a great chance of winning another. So you can see if you're Jack Woolley and you've put your life on hold in so many ways and it all goes down the drain with 10 seconds to go there's a devastation there which must really be difficult to almost even digest in the immediate moments oh listen i i, I can't even imagine it i mean of all the of all the different various different kinds of sports people that you, you you could want to be an olympic athlete just strikes me as the the absolute worst kind um in that sense four years before you get a chance to but right the wrongs of a, of, a, of a low performance or of, you know, the, the smallest of errors, possibly in, in Jack Woolley's case at, at, at the death. I just, you know, I suppose 
the great thing the great thing about the world that I've lived in with the League of Ireland is you're, you're beaten on Friday night well you know you're back in the training ground Monday and you have a chance to redeem yourself again the following Friday night I know the feeling at the end of a season if you've had a disappointing season is horrible thinking that you don't get a chance to put those wrongs right until the start of the new season the thought of a four year wait, wait Joe my god and I know look it's not like there's no other events in between of course there is but look I'm in a different boat than Kieran Kieran knows this stuff inside out I am what uh Thomas Barr and I think one of the other articles we're going to refer to what he refers to as a bandwagoner. I'm I'm absolutely a bandwagoner, but so are, are a huge percentage of, of the Irish population when it comes to to Olympic events. We know nothing about them outside of the four years, um, outside of the the ones we see them every four years. So it's 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 incredible heartbreak. I don't know how those guys come out into that mix zone and are able to speak at all. Uh, you know, obviously the one I remember the Katie Taylor one for a few years ago where I was in tears looking at her in tears, never mind trying to put myself in her shoes. Um, look, the one thing on his side, you've touched on it there without a doubt, is that he's 22 years, uh, 22 years old. I actually remember reading an interview with him this time last year when they were talking about whether the Olympics was, you know, ever going to happen and all of that kind of thing. And he did come across as a, as, as a very, very impressive individual. So, look, he's, he's going to hurt and it's He's probably not going to hurt for the next 24, 48 hours or even a week or month. He's, he's going to be hurting for a good while. But eventually, perspective will come back and you'd love to think that, that, that he is certainly a fellow who will have another rattle at it. That'd be no comfort to him at the moment. As a yeah, teacher, sorry, Kieran, go on. Yeah, just sorry for coming across you, Joe, but I think it's important as well to point out how different this Olympics is. And that's actually made the experience harder as well. Because at least in, in other games, you know, because... Uh, before the initial postponement due to COVID, you know, the ticket sales were higher for this Olympics than any previous ga uh, games. I think maybe Bar London 2012. So all the arenas were going to be packed. So Jack Woolley would have at least had the memory of walking into a packed arena. So would Emmett Brennan, you know, and they would take that with them and they would still have stayed on for the rest of the games, being able to, you know, become part of Team Ireland and cheering on other people in other sports uh, uh, over the next couple of weeks. But because of COVID, they're walking out into empty arenas, and now that they have to get out of uh, out of dodge really quickly, like the, 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 you're not allowed to hang on. Once your event is, is over, mm. you you have to leave. Mm. So it's really it's really diminished Olympic experience for them, and I really feel for them for that reason. Yeah, I totally agree. And do, how do you find it as a TV experience thus far, as opposed to being there? Well, like I, I didn't stay up all night because I I, I can't stay. <laughs> I don't know how people are staying up all night and then operating as normal uh, during the days. But I, I watched a lot of it yesterday. Um, I watched all like the, the highlight so far to me was I watched the hockey, uh, the Ireland women's hockey team against South Africa. And they won 2-0. They played well. But the, the highlight was the anthem. I've never seen Aura Navian like it. Because remember, I think it was before either the Euro two, uh, Euro semi-final or quarter-final. I can't remember which. Giorgio Chiellini. Um, and before Fratelli Italia, the Italian national anthem, you know, with a big smile on his face. And stuff. But all the Irish players were like that. Some of them were laughing. Like, I've never seen anybody get into a buzz of an anthem so much. Like, they were so delighted to be at the Olympics. Like, mm. the first ever uh, women's team in any sport to, to represent Ireland at the Olympics. It was a massive deal for them, for them to be there. If you can get the footage, it's really worth looking at. Like, it will, it will put a smile on your face. And they backed it up with a big performance. They're in a very tough group. So they really had to win that game. But um, the, the highlight for me has been Eric Donovan, uh, hmm. one of the highlights, you know, as well, because Eric is, you've had Eric on uh, a lot. He's the best pundit on RTE. And one of the, it's not just his knowledge and how articulate he is. And, you know, 
and he's uh, engaging and he's very likable. But he can criticize people without being insulting. You know, and this, uh, this is something I might touch on later when we look at Neil Francis' absence from the, from the Sunday paper and what happened to him over the last few days. Like, the use of language in sports punditry analysis is very interesting. Or, you know, it's what, why, are, why do some pundits feel they can describe sports people in terms that you wouldn't get away with? You know, if you met him in a pub, if you met him in, uh, on the street, if you're writing about him in a different field. Like the, the criticism often gets personal and it's based on their appearance or the way they dress, etc. And to me, it's completely out of order, you know. So uh, I, I just think Eric shows another way. Like Eric is a class act. I like the way Eric operates. Yeah, he's brilliant. I think people are falling in love with him all over again at the moment. So he's doing a great job. Uh, just to mention, by the way, before time comes against us, we'll come back to Olympics. But as, uh, this is a short piece on page 22 of the Sunday Times, but it caught my eye. Uh, Bonner, as in Packy Bonner's role, will increase the pressure on Kenny, as in Stephen Kenny. This is Paul Rowan here. So, Shane, I'm sure you read this with interest. The appointment of Packy Bonner to the position of chairman of the International and High Performance Committee. So the FAI have an International and High Performance Committee. Uh, increases pressure on the Ireland manager Stephen Kenny to quickly turn around the dismal results during his tenure so far. Paul Rowan continues, Bonner is thought to be sceptical about Kenny's abilities to deliver on his mission to reinvent Irish international football while at the same time make the country competitive. Obviously, uh, they mentioned in September three games in a week, Portugal, Serbia, Azerbaijan, which will determine whether Ireland still have a chance to qualify for next year's uh, World Cup in Qatar. The piece goes on to say Bonner is believed to be less than impressed, not just with the results, but with the team which Kenny has assembled around him and believes a huge opportunity was missed to bring in Lee Carsley before the former Ireland midfielder became England under 21 manager, an appointment which is expected to be formally announced uh, shortly. Uh, goes on to talk about Bonner then a little bit discarded by John Delaney in 2010 after seven years as technical director on the back of the, the Vantage Club ticket scheme, which has led to so much financial ruin in the FAI. And then it says later on, despite a sole victory in 13 games coming against Andorra, Kenny has been under little internal pressure, while much of the media has also backed his efforts to bring in younger players goes on later to say Bonner is a far more assertive presence and a counterweight to the FAI chairman Roy Barrett who is enthusiastic about Kenny and his rev revisionary uh, zeal so Kenny's two year contract runs out uh, next July and uh, I don't know it caught the eye Packy Bonner not impressed it would seem I mean I will wait here from Packy Bonner on it as well but uh, he's been appointed now as chairman of the international and high performance uh, committee what say he has on who the next manager of Ireland is or who gets a contract extension, I don't know, Shane, but it was an interesting little small piece which packed a punch. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. Um, Joe, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know Packy at all, to be honest with you. I, I would know most people in the FAI to some level. I suppose Packy was just kind of disappearing out of the FAI structure as I was coming into the whole coach education side of things. Um Kieran might correct me, I'm not 100% sure did he play a role in, I remember when that initial Genesis report, this crack, when they went into all the, the, the towns and villages across the country to get the, the public opinion on where stuff was going right and wrong. I remember being in a meeting at the time when that was going on and he, he might have played a role in that. That's a long time back now, so maybe memory is playing tricks on me. But look, he's, he's back in, in, in a prominent role. Paul Rowan is usually 
fairly on the money um, with any line that he has coming out of, of FAI headquarters. So if he's saying that's that's Packy's opinion of Stephen, then that uh, that's probably probably on the money. You would think. Um, look, I. It's going to come down to results, regardless of what Packy thinks or what Packy doesn't think, really, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. those those three games, one way or another, if he gets them right, I'm sure Packy would become a fan pretty quickly. If he gets them wrong, well, then it's probably not going to take Packy being there for the pressure to increase. It's going to increase regardless, anyway. Um, the fact that Lee Carsey's name was thrown out does does interest me. Um, I, I have a coaching I have a coaching podcast, Joe, and, and I had Lee on as 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 one of the the guests on it um, earlier this year, and he, he was he was brilliant. He really really was, I have to say. But the interesting thing about it, and I'm, I'm sure I hope you won't mind me saying this, I I I had given Stephen a call, and I was looking for Stephen to do an episode of the podcast for me, and he said he would, but he was caught at that time, and and it was Stephen that said. Hey, listen. Have, have you tried Lee Carsley? He says he's 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 brilliant. He's a great guy to talk to. He's he's got real insight. He's a great guy. We'll talk coaching and and management and all of that kind of stuff. And it was him that pointed me in in, in his direction. So I'm not sure what the relationship is between the two lads. Or look, that boat has probably sailed in terms of maybe Lee working alongside or or yeah, underneath Stephen with him getting the new role that he has. But um, yeah. Look, it, it, it look inevitably it is all going to come down to results one way or another. Packy, whether Packy's there or not. We're going through the Sunday papers. Kieran Cunningham is here from the Star, and we have Shane Keegan as well, League of Ireland manager, been involved with Dundalk and Galway United and Wexford over the last decade. Uh, Davy Fitzgerald is profiled by the Sunday Business Post, no less. So he gets the Business Post profile treatment, courtesy of Barry J White, page twenty-one of the Business Post. I noticed Shane, you tweeted that we'd be talking about this, and you said like him or loathe him which maybe is like the footing that you kick all Davy conversations <laughs> off on. So the Fitz factor, it's a broad piece, covers a lot of aspects here. I suppose it kicks off on the back of his post-match comments last week where he was talking about the media and Claire being absolutely disgraceful. He was talking about how it's been the toughest year he's ever experienced and the way myself and my family have been treated is an absolute and utter disgrace. 1% of people in Clare causing all the problems. And then he said, it'll all come, ro- come to roost very soon, which it seems was a reference to the fact that Gardy had been investigating complaints by his father, the Clare County Secretary, Pat Fitzgerald, about the abuse. And that had been sent forward at that stage to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, I see the DPP have not recommended criminal prosecution in this instance, although there is some talk of maybe Pat Fitzgerald taking a civil case in the matter. But all that was brewing. And that's what he was talking about when he said things would come home to roost. Look, lots of interesting things to give people who haven't read the piece a flavour before getting your thoughts on it, fellas. Um, two-time All-Ireland winner as a player, once as a manager, three-time All-Star. In his autobiography, he quotes a friend as saying, Fitzy, if you were from Limerick, they'd have a statue of you outside the Gaelic Rounds. Instead, writes Barry J. White, he's vilified and knocked and attacked and shot at and turn on, turned on. Again, this in his own words, yet it raises the question, why? And so Barry J. White writes, well, some of it is a matter of Fitzgerald's personality. He is, by his own description, a polarising figure. And he talks about um, that himself in his autobiography. He says, on one level, I regret it. I hate the one dimensional view so many people have formed of me across the years, even if I know too deep down that much of it is self-inflicted. And then the piece navigates through to the Brian Lohan uh, situation. So there was the time where uh, Davy's team came out of the trees, famously uh, through a hedge and uh, used 
the oppositions laid out cones for their own warm-up and it seemed to rattle uh, Lowen's team and the Fitzgibbon and the two men didn't shake hands afterwards and when Fitzgerald rang Lowen to end the awkward silence between them it only made things worse. It's not clear what exactly happened. Lowen keeps a studious silence on the matter. Fitzgerald would only coyly say in his book that Lowen allegedly, quote, made a comment I have no intention of ever repeating, end quote. And he said, let's just say the comment was poor. That's as far as I'll go. Um, and it seems Davy is happy. Lowen told a local newspaper now he felt there should be a review of Hurling and Clare. Fitzgerald read this as an implied criticism of himself and his father. Um, interesting point at his wedding in 2019, just one member of the Clare team was in attendance. I didn't realise that. Just one member of his Clare team was in attendance at his uh, wedding, the team he played on, that is. The only teammate there was Jer Sparrow O'Loughlin, who also happened to be the brother of the bride. And then it goes on finally into the current criticism of the Clare County Board and Pat Fitzgerald and the pressure on him. It's also led to questions around Davies' uh, reign as manager of Clare and questions as well about the fundraising for Clare hurling supporters groups during that time. So it seems that Clare GA didn't have financial oversight of the supporters group, despite GA rules requiring it to have oversight. Uh, Fitzgerald declined to comment to the Sunday Times on the story saying he didn't want to comment while there was a Garda investigation into the abuse of his father at the time. And then there was again a story I hadn't fully been aware of. I mean, so many different elements to this. Uh, last summer between Clare and Wexford, there was a game and one of the Clare backroom staff went and sat behind Davy at the game and started, well, shouting down at him, asking him questions about the supporters club. Uh, the member of staff, he denied being abusive, but he said he had been asking Fitzgerald questions about the supporters club repeatedly during the match. Fitzgerald's denied any wrongdoing in this whole area. He's uh, called people smart arses and talked about lazy questions. He said every single cent that was raised went to supporting the senior and underage teams. And in some instances, I even did this out of my own pocket. And for the record, I never took a single cent for myself from the supporters club. And then the piece concludes by talking about the... Uh, Ireland's Fittest Family show which obviously he pitched to RTE and they commissioned it and he said people think I'm getting loads of money out of it he said uh, basically the dream would be if it became a global TV programme because then well a lot of small percentages might accumulate into something substantial but I wish uh, it had proved the cash cow, cow so many seem to imagine and he's just bought a pub down in uh, Le Hinch which he'll name after himself so that's the gist of the uh, Fitz Factor profile of Daily Fitz I've given you kind of a potted version of it there uh, what did you make of it Shane? Oh, geez. Where do you start, Joe? Um, <laughs> well, look, well, sorry. Where I, are you? Where are you to use your own tweet on the like him or loathe them? Uh, I mean, we don't. I don't loathe know. is a strong. Loathe is a strong word. But so, where are you on Davy Fitz? Yeah. I don't know. I'd say Davy Fitz doesn't know where he is on Davy Fitz, Joe. That's the truth. Like the man, I'd say he polarizes himself. Like you know, the the, the um. I often think when I think of Davy Fitz, I often think of the the credits at the the start of of second captains, the Brian Clough line. Um, I want to be like me. It's like Davy. I'd say he knows all the flaws in his character, and he knows all. He knows the vast majority of the time. He, he I'd say he's doing something, and he knows what I'm doing here is wrong, and I shouldn't be doing this. But he, he just can't help himself. He just can't stop himself. And, the one other thing I'd throw in there, you covered so much in your brief there, but uh, the fact file I thought was very good as well. His appearance, under appearance, they have short of stature, towering of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, as you say, I do, I think I, the one thing I'd say, the, the, the wedding part, I found that very sad. I definitely found that very, very sad. Um, 
look, I'm 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 involved with the hurling team for my first time this year, and and you see the, the the close bonds with people from from the same community or from the same club in our case. But but you can imagine that I would have thought the bonds between county players who have gone through what they have gone through and and won all Ireland's. I would have you know that would seem to me almost as an unbreakable bond and. It's absolutely anything, but it's so sad to think of the fact that 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 Sparrow Lachlan was the only person that, at, at at the wedding. I just that was one thing that that definitely struck me. But he's just such a conflicted character. I mean, he says here at one stage, "I don't want confrontation. I hate it." Now, Jesus, Davies, that's the case. I don't. It must be some sort of sadist because you seem to put yourself in as many situations of confrontation as as there can possibly be, um, and it's it. People are probably getting Davy fatigued to a certain extent at the moment because uh, obviously the whole loan thing dragging on and the whole lot. But I suppose uh, again, just to jump, I know I'm jumping all over the place, but at, no, no, at the good, very end, good. at the very end, they they says he doesn't reveal who he's talking to, but 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 White says um, that an individual said it's no accident that the Galway players camped outside his house trying to convince him to come to Galway, while Wexford players similarly made personal representation to have him stay. Um, and I know a bit about that when I remember talking to Chin at the time about them going down and, and getting them to stay on. So for all the outside perception of, you know, everything that's wrong with him, by God, he formed, he formed some bond. And I suppose in his own head, it's probably 98% of the people in this world are against me. But if you're in that 2% that are with me, I will do absolutely anything for you. And I will go to war for you like no man ever will. And, and that will obviously buy huge, huge support and huge, huge affection and, and respect from from players. And that's why he does have his success, Joe, for all the all the other stuff that comes with him. Yeah, Kieran. Yeah, uh, only three Irish sports people have ever released two autobiographies. Do you know who they are? Ronan O'Gara. Ronan O'Gara, Roy Keane, and Davy Fitzgerald, which is remarkable. And if you read Davies, both two of both of Davies' books, a large part of it is a score settling, which always seems to be a big, big thing with Davy. That you know, there are always grudges or perceived grudges and things that he feels he has to sort out. Now, when he got married two years ago, there was a, a photo spread of posed photos in RSVP magazine. He's appeared regularly in the Late Late Show. The Ireland's fittest family has been an extraordinarily success story. In his recent TV series, Davies' toughest team. It was both widely watched and widely praised. You know, he's, he's, he's one of the most divisive figures in the GA, but he's always on. You know, I, I was at a dinner once and I sat beside Davey and it was around nine years ago because um, Jimmy Guinness was still doing well with Donegal. And I sat beside Davey for about three or four hours and he spent the whole time asking about Jim's, what Jim did at training, what he did in the dressing room, what the tactics were, you know, how he changed the tactics how the players bought in, what he'd done about nutrition, everything. Mm. But he's just trying to gain knowledge from whoever he's talking to all the time. And he's a very busy mind. But I remember um, before Wexford's first championship game this year, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a profile around the Marmite quality of Davey. You know, you either love him or hate him. And it was interesting bringing people to talk to him. Like one person said to me, I don't want to make a public enemy of Davey. If I spoke, I'd have to say what I really think. And Hurling's a very small world. Another said, I've no time for him, but I won't get into a slagging match with Davy in public. He's a lot of power. I gain nothing from it. But he has a remarkable track record. You know, he has won Munster and Leinster titles with uh, Wexford and Waterford. He's won All Ireland with Clare, Fitzgibbon, two Fitzgibbon Cups with Limerick IT. 
he, he tends to make a big impact with whatever job he takes on. And I, I rang Jer Canning for that piece, and Jer knows Davey quite well, and they get on well. And he told me an interesting story about him. And he said it was back before Clare played Limerick in the 2013 All-Ireland semi-final. And back then, they'd bring RT would bring managers along a corridor to a separate room in the Hogan stand to do a pre-match interview. John Allen was managing Limerick, and Jared already talked to him. And he told Davey that as they were walking along, that he'd been chatting to John, and John had mentioned the weather conditions. And Davey just goes, I don't give a damn what John Allen thinks. And, you know, this was, uh, he, he just, uh, Jerry said to me, I knew then he was in the zone. That he's like an actor who takes on a role and he consumes himself in the role completely. And I think he has different personalities. Um, you know, I think as well, there are questions to be asked about what is happening with Claire. Like saying it's 1% of people in Claire that are causing trouble and questioning how the county board, et cetera, have operated for a long time. That's far from, from the case. Mm. You know, Anthony Daly wrote a very strong column about this a few weeks ago in the Examiner. Gerald Nan has written about it regularly in the Star. And there's a lot of people within Clare who are not happy with the way things operate. And saying it's just a vendetta against the Fitzgeralds, I don't think stands up. Mm. No, I think that's fair. I think there's, there are legitimate questions for sure. I mean, the point you make, Shane, uh, stuck with me the most there in some ways that he must be a sadist if he hates confrontation, which he says he does, because it does seem like he goes from one spat to another. They're often so public as well and must be stressful. Like you think there was one with Michael Dignan not so long ago and then uh, there was one with Gerlach Nan last year, which got very, very strong. And, you know, just one player from the team he played with at his own wedding in 2019. And that was the brother of the bride. Like there is a real sadness about that because you list out his credentials and his achievement from Ireland's fittest family to owning the few pubs and mm. his Fitzgibbon record to win two All-Irelands as a Clare player and to win three All-Stars and then to lead your same county to an All-Ireland win, a glorious win in 2013. I mean, this should just be like such a happy, wonderful experience at every turn, you know, a lot of good days in there. And it seems like it's been very stressful and far too many fallouts and you know, it's funny with the Barry J. White includes the line in his book about the Brian Lohan fallout. And like when you think about the genesis of this fallout with the lads coming out from the trees and the it's war, unbelievable, isn't it? like it's so childish, it's so stupid. Uh, but when he says in his book and like this just struck me as like just this is such a Davy line where he says, uh, well, look, you know, all I'm saying about Lohan is he made a comment I've no intention of ever repeating. <laughs> Let's just say the comment was poor, but that's as far as I'll go. Yes, yeah, like. I don't think you're that shocked by the comment that you couldn't dare repeat it. And and again, with the Clare criticism just last week, he's like, look, I'd say nothing about it, but I, let me tell you this now, it's way over the line. I, like at a certain point, you have to, well, go a bit further and tell us what are you talking about here? Because he, he airs it, but doesn't air it fully. So you never really know what's going on half the time. And I don't know, does he find all this horribly, horribly stressful? Or does he thrive on it? Or a mixture of the two? But as you said, Shane, it's been just a part of his whole career, unfortunately, and I don't really see why. Yeah, yeah. No, look, as you say, look, he, there's no doubt he, he brings a huge, huge majority of it on himself. Like, I, I think Barry White does it quite well in, in saying, as you say, he's he's vilified and not by his own words. But the question is, why? And does Davey ever sit down himself and ask himself why? Like, how, why have I all this stress? Like, I you genuinely would worry about the man's health, you know, <laughs> Because the amount of stress he must be under, and then the, the the physical toll on his body from the lepping and jumping that he does on on the sideline, you, you worry from that side of things. But and then the other thing that I do think sometimes as well, Joe, is 
when you look at that clear team and again the only one of them being at the wedding and maybe that's not a big thing in his mind mm. but like we're talking about Anthony Daly we're we're, we're talking a very about, very hard man to get uh, along Jim, with Anthony Daly yeah, James O'Connor like Anthony yeah, yeah, yeah. Daly James O'Connor how do you fall out with Pete not that he's fallen out well I think he feels as pundits in particular they've been critical of him like it says that in the piece you know that he feels they were unsupportive of him over the last number of years and so I can see how that would be difficult if former teammates are in the media and he's trying to be a manager and he would take that stuff personally I guess that's how it happens yeah 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 look I, I suppose it is but again you have to you have to be looking listening to their comments from a certain perspective I suppose because I actually on listening to Delo's podcast I always feel that he's pretty fair on, on, on Davy. I think he absolutely doesn't go out of his way to, to stick the knife in at all at all um, but look uh, I don't know. I know we we have a, a chap here, Kieran, probably know him. With Will, Willie Highland would have been been a fantastic hurler here for Leash for the last twenty years. Willie hurled under Mohund at 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 IT when they won those two Fitzgibbon Cups, and ah, uh, I mean, Will, Willie Highland would, would go do absolutely anything for the man. Yeah, absolutely anything for the man. You yeah. know, and I, I think just so many more would say that. But I'll tell you, I'd say once he's gone from you, he's gone from you, and. He might have been the the the, the, the sun shining out might have shone out here for a while, but I'd say as soon as you're no longer in his team, now you you'll get as much grief as anybody else, I'd imagine. Mm, yeah, guess polarizing. Look, uh, just, pe- pe- as you said, it, people it, love him, people adore him, other people don't. But. Yeah, and he's an incredibly driven character, an incredibly incredible. I mean, to do what he's done with even with Ireland's fittest family, and to to have that about you, to come up with a concept and. And, and, and get it off the ground and get it running and there's he's an incredible like there's no doubt there's huge you have to have huge admiration for that yeah it's drive, impressive absolute insatiable drive that he has that's really impressive to get that off the ground as well in fairness to him he's 49 Kieran. on a last thought for you so I don't know was he done with Wexford it felt like the end of an era this summer let's say he is or done maybe next year does another year he's going to run out of county soon enough if he wants to do this okay. for another 10-12 yeah, years to me, the job he would want, and I've no reason for saying this, this is off the top of my head, but I think he'd love the Dublin job. The potential there. Yeah, because just the, yeah, the potential there. There's so many hurlers in Dublin now. There's money in Dublin, you know, to to put a good back, a very strong backroom team in place. You know, I think also the profile Kieran, would, would appeal to. Him. Hmm? How how would the Davy Fitz John Costello relationship go? Uh, I think John wants winners. Davy is a winner, so yeah. You know, that's, like there's no vacancy in Dublin, and, and I don't know if there will be anytime soon. But to me, I think it's a it's a job. I think it would um, like you look at the teams that are left. I think the five teams left in hurling four four from Munster. You know, Munster is very Leinster hurling doesn't look to be particularly strong at the moment. So I think Davy would things like that would appeal to him. Say if there's a Leinster title there, maybe a shot at an All Ireland with Dublin. You know, that would be some 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 something to put in the CV. Well, that's on page 21 of the Business Post, the profile, the Fitz Factor by Barry J. White. Michael Meehan at halftime. Thank you for the time being, Michael. So it's Galway again, 2-5, Mayo six points, five-point lead for Galway at the break. Kieran Cunningham, back page of the Mail on Sunday. New heat on Man City in cash cheat probe. So there was a decision in uh, a UK court during the week to allow all of this to go public. Uh, what the Mail described, Nick Harris describes as three of the most senior judges in Britain ruled that the existence of this legal battle between the league, the Premier League, and Man City, now two and a half years old, should no longer remain a secret. So uh, dozens of pages of paperwork have been released in conjunction with the Court of Appeal judgment. 
and they have laid bare that the Premier League's frustration at Man City's long-term non-cooperation and their refusal to hand over documents that might incriminate them or indeed exonerate them. Oh, you mentioned this and honestly, I just find this hard to care about. I, <laughs> I was really like, actually, do. yeah, Joe, because when you, when you just mentioned it there, the, did you come to me on this? I was thinking, oh no, Joe, please explain it to you. Because you I'm mentioned really... it. You brought it up. Yeah, yeah. You put it into the but WhatsApp not... group. Yeah, but it is, uh, it is a big story, but it's a very hard story to explain. Because, you know, it's about, you know, it's about corporate governance. It's about, um, it's about how a business operates, how various deals are described in, 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 in documentation, in maybe in ways that the authorities might think they shouldn't be described as. So I don't think we should spend too much time on it because I think it does bore people, but I think it is significant in that particularly a lot of Manchester City fans, you know, put forward this thing, oh, City have been cleared of all wrongdoing. This went to the Court of Arbitration was forward, et cetera. But the Premier League investigation is ongoing. And it does seem an issue with city's owners, uh, who effectively the state of uh, and the UAE, and they have ties to so many companies who are also have links to city, and how money has been funneled through them, and whether um, there's complete transparency around sponsorship deals, especially. And I think it's very significant because one of the, the drivers uh, of the European Super League was the big financial problems that a lot of clubs are, big clubs are facing. And that, that we're only going to see the impact of COVID over the next couple of seasons, you know. And the big spenders now really are just City, Chelsea and PSG. I think that United are spending big because of the pressure being put on the Glazers uh, by the fans and they're trying to appease them to an extent. But Liverpool only spend what they bring in. Arsenal, Tottenham, uh, you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona have huge financial issues. Bayern Munich are spending massively. So... I think there will be scrutiny on the, uh, of this because uh, City, Chelsea and PSG could just pull away from everybody else because of their financial power. Yeah. And there are questions to be asked around the way City operates. This will go nowhere. Mark my words. <laughs> this is nothing irrelevant. Their lawyers will make no, well, I, I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily will go everywhere because, you know, there's a, there's a long, there's two pages in there describing the court proceedings yeah. and how lawyered up they were yeah. and, the, and the barrister and 20 grand a day. You know, they have a lot of money behind them to defend this. And is there a willingness to take on City, you know, with City's power and, uh, you know, even the, the cachet that Guardiola has, etc. But it is... It's not a good look for the game. It's not a good look of these really rich no. clubs just to go over and pull, out, pull away. City will play that barrister 100 grand a day if they have to for the next 20 years. Yeah, yeah. No problemo. Bring it on. Uh, something totally different then. Kieran, you picked this out as well. David Walsh, the yeah. Norway women's team, fined for not wearing bikini bottoms during a handball game. <laughs> I, I couldn't... Um, believe this was such a thing like this is just uh, extraordinary so the the handball committee rules get this so like they were all fined 150 euro each the international handball federation according to the rules players quote must wear bikinis male players must wear vest tops and shorts and then if you think that's as vague as it gets it doesn't female athletes must wear bikini bottoms with a close fit and on an upward angle towards the top of the leg they go on to say the sides of the bikini bottoms must be no more than four inches. Men, on the other hand, can wear shorts as long as four inches above the knees, provided they're not too baggy. 
And apparently Norway have been complaining about this since about 2006 and yeah. there's been no change. So this caught your eye, this story. Yeah, and one of the reasons was it, it reminded me of um, something Katie Taylor actually spoke out uh, about before the 2012 Olympics. Like you, might, you might have forgotten about this, but the AIBA, which is the international governing body for the um, for amateur boxing, uh, wanted women to, to wear skirts at the London Olympics. And the, the reason put forward, in order to make them appear more elegant, and elegant within quote marks, and to distinguish them from their male counterparts, which is bizarre, but you know, Katie, uh, Katie has so much power in in the sport. Like she was the, one of the main reasons why boxing was at those Olympics. And she spoke out and she said, "I don't even wear mini skirts on the night out. I definitely won't be wearing wearing them in the ring." And uh, the move was binned. But there has been this um, there has been this thing within a lot of sports to kind of try and please what what female competitors wear. You know, David Walsh mentions it there. Like I, I know quite a few female track and field athletes and they're not all entirely comfortable with the kit they're supposed to wear because like very it's, it's it's very skimpy compared to what the men wear mm. and uh but they're not it's men that's making these decisions and david walsh references um michelle Wui, the the golfer and who who um at a uh rudy giuliani told a story in the steve bannon bot podcast about a, a charity golf tournament that he was at and that he could see up her skirt, and he was making great play of being able to see up Michelle Wee's skirt. And Michelle Wee spoke about about this about how annoyed, annoyed she was, like that this is what this man like. She's a top world class competitor in her sport, and like he was on about all oh, the way she, you know, the way her, the way she, the, the way she her golf swing is. You can see up her skirt, and like it was a disgraceful comment to make, but it's actually it's actually off the wall. Because the one, one of the great things about the Olympics is it's very equal in terms of a male-female representation. Like there's actually more women on the Irish team than men this time, you know. And some of the most high-profile competitors on 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 the Ireland team are, are female, and you don't get that in other sporting events. But that this attempt to sexualise women's sport is off the wall. Yeah, I think it's uh, coming to the end very very soon. I mean, the New York Times have been on this case and the IHF are scrambling and uh, they're looking into the reasons internally for the dress code is their official comment. Walsh writes, young women athletes dressed in the most revealing bikini bottoms are believed to be more likely to sell their sport than women dressed in shorts. Women are required to wear more revealing outfits in many sports, including track and field and tennis. Effectively, they are sexualized in a misguided attempt to promote their sports, which pretty much seems like the case. I mean, that's the only real logic for the thing. So... Um, that's on the back page of the Sunday Times. Uh, we have a few more pieces to get to. The uh, rugby coverage in the lines, one or two Olympic pieces and uh, Michael Foley writing about Brendan O'Duffy. We'll come back to uh, finish off the pay-per-view in just one moment. Yeah, now you're welcome back. So penalty for Mayo, which gets them to 1-6. So they are nine points to Galway's 11, right back in at 40 minutes on the clock and in possession. So Mayo suddenly backed within two. We're reviewing the Sunday papers. Final Part of the chat with Kieran Cunningham and Shane Keegan. So if you want Lions coverage, there is plenty of it, as you might imagine. The first seven pages of the Sunday Times, for instance, it's the main picture. And then you've Stuart Barnes inside talking about how exceptional Maro Itoje was. And he was exceptional, to be fair to him. Lawrence Delalio on just what a joke it was, frankly, that Marius Jonker was the TMO, even though he's from South Africa. It put him in a very difficult position he got the decisions on the two disallowed tries right. He got the Hamish Watson try. Or sorry, the Hamish Watson should have been a yellow, if not a red, but certainly a yellow. He got that wrong. And uh, 
He said, imagine if he had gone the other way on either of these two tries, it would have left uh, Jonker as embarrassed as the Lions would have been outraged. Peter O'Reilly is a very good piece. It just talks about Henshaw really and how he went out four years ago and was one of the jet-lagged players on the New Zealand tour, played in that first game and struggled to win his way back and then he got injured and so here he is, 28, and at his physical peak and his hamstring, by all accounts it seems, was ready to go for the South Africa A game but Gatland wanted him ready for this game. He knew that Henshaw was the man who could quieten down Diolande. Two of his quietest games last season were against Leinster and a lot of that was down to Henshaw. And then Peter O'Reilly writes of this uh, game of two halves, so Lions down by nine at half time and they win the second half, 19 points to five. For the Lions, the winning of the game turned out to be their ability to emulate South Africa's tactics. Ali Price, Dan Bigger, later Conor Murray all went the aerial route, aiming to maximise the huge height difference between Colby and van der Merwe. Ultimately, the Springboks' discipline wilted, and it really did. They gave away 14 penalties in the end. It wilted under the heavy bombardment. So 1938, you have to go back to 1938, the last time the Lions overturned a half-time deficit of nine points or more to win a test match. And then, for instance, have it in front of me here, Sunday Independent, loads of coverage as well. Ian McGeegan's piece included in the Sunday Independent. And uh, Bernard Jackman as well, lines rolled up sleeves and landed blows, uh, talked about how it was a huge swing in the scrum. Mako Vinopola made a huge difference off the bench. And he said uh, Gatlin gave the most important team talk of his career. I presume... Uh, Bernard Jackman obviously drafted in Kieran in place and Neil Francis you wanted to mention that so uh, yeah well, well it's just because it was such um, like between the Sunday Tribune and the Sunday the pen Neil Francis was such a hugely significant figure in Sunday papers for for over 30 years I think, I think his first pieces in the, in the Tribune were in 1987 World Cup you know when he was still playing for Ireland so for like I don't know if he's going to crop up anywhere else um you know, I don't know how, how this will pan out, whether he wants to or not. Maybe he'll just think, you know, I've done my time. You know, this has been a bit of a headache and I want to walk away. But it's, uh, it is significant. Like, it was a significant move by the, um, the owners of the independent newspapers to, to end his contract uh, over uh, remarks he made at a podcast. And the, the, the remarks have been made the podcast, I think, nine days earlier, but they were, they were only highlighted uh, on Friday. And the, the cause of ruction to the UK, you know, Harlequins, the club of Marcus Smith, who we'd mentioned, and I think the Lions themselves might have issued a statement. Yeah. So, so you know, there was a, a serious heat on. So it's it just uh, it's interesting because Bernard Jackman has come in, and Bernard Jackman is very unlike Neil Francis. Like he's uh, he's been in here. Like you've had Neil Francis in here before, a review in papers, and that actually caused a bit of hassle nine years ago. I think it was something he said, and then. But you've had Bernard Jackman in regular. Bernard is, is very straight. You know, he's more in the Eric Donovan mold in that, uh, you know, he w- he wouldn't be as cutting in his use of language as Neil would, Neil Francis would. Like, like, and I think it does show a sea change now. Like, there was a time when Neil Francis regularly described the Leinster rugby team as ladyboys. I don't, I don't know if you get away with that now. And people say that as, oh, that's an example of cancel culture or woke or political correctness or supposedly you can't say anything these days, but there is an argument that there are things you shouldn't say in the sport, you know, when, when it's a, a sporting column and you're analysing sporting performances. Like why do you have to use certain language? And it's not just about using racially loaded terms. You know, there's, a, like I remember, uh, uh, remember Joe Brawley in RT when he, uh, when he described Conor Mortimer and Kieran McDonald 
as like Swedish milkmaids because they're blonde hair. You know, that that was needlessly insulting. You know, why why pick on somebody's appearance or the way they dress or the way they carry themselves? No, analyze their performance, fair enough. Analyze what they say, yeah, that's fair enough. I think, uh, you know, particularly in, ter- in terms of what managers and coaches say, but go uh, make a smart-ass comments on somebody's appearance. Doesn't stand up. It actually reminds me, back in the early noughties, um, Val Andrews in his first spell managing Cavan, I can't remember who they played in the first round in Ulster, but they, they played really poorly. They were beaten. I think they only scored five or six points. And I was writing a column at the time, and a little brief in the column. Beforehand, I think Val had said they had something like 150, 160 training sessions, which back then was a huge amount, you know, in preparation for the championship. And I'd made a smart-ass uh, comment in the column that maybe they should have brought a ball to some of those training sessions. And Val actually rang me up, and he was really reasonable. Like, I've got to know Val a bit since, and he's a really good guy. Yeah. And he said, we had a ball at every single training session. You know, I thought that was unfair. And I said, no, I take that on board. It was smart-ass. And I've actually tried to watch myself a bit since then. You know, because you can think something is fun, that's a funny line, but somebody can get really hurt by it. And I think it's important in the position we're in, you know, particularly myself and you, you and Joe, uh, you, Joe, we work all the time as, uh, in the media. You know, you have to be careful the language you use. And I think it's no harm that people are called up on it. Yeah, it's funny. The smart ass lines are the ones that get you in yeah, yeah. the most bother. And I, when I say bother, I mean that irritate those you're talking about the most as in you know yeah. just like that ball one I wonder if they bought a ball it's a it's a little line it's a silly thing and actually in that one single line you're dismissing Val Andrews entire coaching efforts yeah. that entire year you know in one yeah. in one line so casually and so dismissively so sometimes they bother people more than really tough analysis over 25 no, minutes dissecting the, the Andrews agree. performance yeah. Yeah. yeah I absolutely agree you know that's uh, and it was a big lesson for me you know the, the thing it's not worth it for the sake of you know, a little line like that is the same as a sarky tweet. It's the same thing, yeah. you know, it's, it's a verbal equivalent of it or, or, or print equivalent of it. You know, you have to, those are the things that stick with people. Like, you know, I've, I've know, you know, I know people in different sports and they will bring up a line yeah. that a pundit said that the pundit would never remember. Like it was such a throwaway line to them, but that it, it stuck in them for years. Shane, your thoughts on uh punditry and how it's changing and I guess you'd have an insight into what stuff lands with players and what bothers them I don't you know Le- League of Ireland players probably aren't dissected as much as no. others so maybe you know they're, they're not having to read entire pieces about themselves or be discussed at length No they're not but 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 they do have to deal with social media so I suppose that's kind of their prism um, that they view their performance through more so than than um maybe what's in the what's in the papers um and it look obviously that has 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 a huge huge effect the amount of players that i've had over the last few years who have just got off social media because of the level of abuse they were taking after a couple of poor individual performances or a couple of poor team performances um like listening to kieran talk there Kieran, what you need to get is uh, a, a wife like mine who occasionally <laughs> sees you putting up a smart ass comment on Twitter and tells you to take it down. Um, yeah. That's that that has happened to me once or twice, so it has, and it does yeah. it does make you think when it's when it's you know when you're just hit with you're just trying to be you're just trying to be a smart ass there, Shane, and you think yeah, 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 yeah. what what other purpose did that comment serve? Yeah. Um, but yeah, look we. We all you, you do it without thinking, um, and I suppose the onus is on us to think. 
um, before you you throw these what you see as you know what you at the time see as a flippant comment or a, a cheap laugh comment out there. Um, it it can be much more to, more than that to the receiver, you know. Tell me this, fellas, are the the Lions doing it for you? It's been a fairly miserable tour thus far, <laughs> but the game obviously last night ebbed and flowed on the scoreboard and had a real intensity about it. Anyone into it majorly? Like, were you, were you gorging on the seven pages of the Sunday Times and, and all the line stuff? Joe, I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. I, I really, no. <laughs> and I've been on with you before and I've held my hand up and said I'm, I'm, I'm not a big a big rugby fan. I'll, I'll dip in and out. I do like Bernard, the aforementioned Bernard Jackman. I yeah. will literally watch or read anything that Ronan O'Gara says. But by and large, I'm not a big rugby man, but I okay. just can't wrap my head around this concept. I never have been able to wrap my head around this concept. Imagine putting together a soccer team from England, Ireland, soccer and Wales, taking them off to play Argentina or Brazil and Times dedicating the front seven pages of the paper to it. I just, I, I know I'm simplifying it there a little bit, but I just, I just, it just, I can't understand it. Kieran, yeah, well, uh, it's it's such a hard sell the lines in uh, in terms of, you know, you get emails from various uh, from them three years out. Seems to me, you know, just pushing, you know, the. the you know, even interviews with former lines and the, the builder just goes on forever. But the test matches are incredible sport generally. Mm. You know, and that's really what it's about. Like it's not about all the guff and the DVDs and watching Living with the Lions and McGeehan speech again and all that stuff. It's about the you know, really high level sport. And you know, I watched so much sport yesterday and the full games I watched the full game of the hockey and the full game of Cork and Clare and I watched the last half an hour of the Lions and you know, it's absolutely brutal, like uh, uh, brutal in terms of, you know, the brutality, the physicality of that last half an hour. And, you know, like a lot of the coverage is quite samey, uh, I find, because, you know, they're all concentrating on that and what a physical battle it was, etc. cetera. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's I watched the test matches. I, I find Warren Gatland interesting because he winds so many people up here and he's got an incredible track record, you know, and it's uh, it's happening for him again. But um, uh, I do find, and this is something that we might touch upon with the Olympics as well, uh, because of COVID, the Irish journalists aren't there. I don't, well, as far as I know, there's no Irish journalists there. And I think uh, you do notice that, that when people are covering something remotely, that it's not the same. Mm. No, they don't have the, you're not getting the same kind of insight about, you know, what's actually going on and the feel of the whole thing. So I miss that. Yeah. I miss that part of it. On the Olympics front, we had picked out Thomas Barr and the Sunday Independent. Quite a good interview, I think. And um, yeah. Kelly Harrington as well. Really good profile of her in the Mail on Sunday. Like Barr is just this, uh, you know, <laughs> like I think we're all curious to see can lightning strike twice here in that he produced his very, very best performance at the Olympics five years ago after being out for 11 weeks in the spring and no injury and, and with injury problems. And boom, he just... Um, caught fire and he has been talked about as a you know big race performer the bigger the race the more pressure the better he performs so he's going into these games with a season best 48.39 the fastest time he's ever run outside of a championship so maybe there is some hope that he'll improve on that now in the games although Carl Dennehy who does the piece does at the end say look he's 28 now the harsh reality is he probably won't come home from Tokyo with a medal and, and you know that yeah. almost needs to be up front and in headlines because if we judge Thomas Barber whether or not he wins a medal then uh, that's just too high 
a bar for him no pun intended but it's a it's an interesting piece talks about you know how much his life changed after the games and suddenly being famous and stopping the streets and mm. being very conscious like things like social media like if he you know just got to be so wary of what he's saying or if he's out and about with friends in the age of smartphones he says he's just so wary of what he says because he doesn't want to record it and taken out of context and how quickly things can turn negatively he's not um not bemoaning this massively but he's just uh, talking about the way his life turned on its head overnight five years ago I thought that was a pretty good piece I thought it was probably maybe the best of the Olympic ones Kieran. yeah yeah no I'd agree with that like Pahal is excellent like there's nobody better like on the international stage even you know across the UK US etc there's very very few people who know athletics and write about athletics better than Pahal he, he is top class and you know he was a very good athlete he competed at uh, Ireland under 23 team at the European cross country championship like a top class athlete himself there's always a media race at these um, at these major championships and, and Olympics as well. You know, it's 400 uh, over 400 meters, and uh, or, or I think it's often actually 800 meters. And and Cahill always wins these by a mile. Hmm. And a lot of the a lot of the reporters from other countries would have athletic backgrounds as well, but Cahill's still still in good nick. But uh, there's a few things that stuck out me. There's like um, Thomas telling one story about you know how his profile changed, and when he was in Lidl. And like, if you know Thomas, he does all this kind of, I don't know what you call it, off-road racing, or I can't remember what you call it, but uh, he gets uh, old bangers in cars and soups them up when they race them. Like, he's a speed, an adrenaline junkie. But he's on, he was in Lidl, he says, and he got he got a, a shopping trolley and he was whirling along the aisle, hanging onto the trolley. And an old man went over to him and said, you know, you're going to get injured doing that. Like, he recognized him and thought, well, actually, I better watch myself a bit here, but... I was at, I was at uh, Thomas's three races in Rio, and I remember afterwards somebody saying to him, you know, uh, oh, you know, you're in a great position now for for Tokyo in a couple of years, and and he just had this look in his face, and he's going, he knew, I think he knew, that was probably his best shot. Yeah, you know, he was so close to a medal, and like even now, like to get out of the heat, there's no guarantee to get out of this heat. Like the competition, you know. When you mentioned, uh, uh, Carl mentioned a couple of the guys that have emerged since since Rio, like Warholm in particular. Like, there's a couple of new young guys every year who are just superstars. Like, it's a really loaded event. So, you know, it's not like the whole world has stood still and they're just waiting for Thomas to 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 come along and claim the medal. He he'll do very very well to get to a final if he gets to a final. Give him a shot because he's such a, a good performer in a big race. But it's very hard to get to the final, and. Um, you know, I actually thought he would have a medal by now, and that uh, that is touched on in the piece because yeah. uh, there was one guy in front of him. You know, I won't name him, but you know, people thought it would have question marks about him, and you know, his profile since would would add to those questions. And like Rob Herfinan got a a medal from London 2012 a few years later, and a few of us thought that might happen to Thomas Barr. It hasn't happened yet. The way he's talking there, he thinks there's a possibility it might happen sometime, or maybe. Maybe more. He's hoping that might happen sometime. Yes, so they keep the. I look forward to watching him because he's a great character. Great, like so, top no fella. infectious. He's such yeah. a really lovely fellow. Yeah. yeah, they keep the samples for ten years, and so far, like London twenty twelve is such a stain on the Olympics. Like really, if you go back through all of them, none of them are good. Yeah. But like London, a hundred and twenty seven disqualifications since, yeah. and twenty nine medal upgrades. Fourteen of them in athletics. So Barr says of getting a medal maybe he says it's a real possibility but I'm not getting my hopes up I'm not letting it bring me up or down like it's, yeah. it's, isn't it mad that we'll find out the results maybe about 10 years after most games like when it all comes out in the wash 
Um, I thought the I thought yeah. the little I thought the little snippet on the call room was very good as well, Joe. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice yeah. little bit of insight. The, the confined area where athletes must sit and stew at length before being released out onto the track. And then Barr says, it can be a very nerve-wracking place. You and seven competitors in a room no bigger than a small hotel room with chairs facing each other and everybody talking to themselves, eyes closed. Like imagine imagine being in a call room with you saying bolt like my mm. God, you'd be you'd be your legs would be shaking before you got out on the track. <laughs> Well, based on yeah. the halftime tunnel route there at Crow Park, things could get very tasty very quickly. Um, fellas, we're pretty much out of time. Sorry, we won't get through everything we planned to. I know, by the way, you mentioned, Shane, you were at Semple Stadium yesterday for the game, uh, Waterford against Galway. So any uh, takeaway from that you wanted to mention about the experience? Um, yeah, look, brilliant to be back at, at, at live sport, first and foremost, on the match itself, just utterly bemused by by how poor Galway were I couldn't have predicted in a million years they were awful Joe for, for three quarters of the game they were absolutely awful and considering how poor they'd been against Dublin I just automatically assumed that was uh, we were going to see a huge huge response from yesterday and we got we got anything but Waterford were very very good but I think the result was more to do with how poor Galway were and uh, look putting putting two and two together we mentioned Davy Fitz already and how Galway players camped on it you know you'd wonder will Shane O'Neill be back for another year put Dave, you appear up there, but uh, yeah, yeah, awful performance from Galway, really was. Fellas, we're out of time. Thanks so much, Shane Keegan. Pleasure, Karen Cunningham, as ever. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.